everybody. I'm Blue Gal. This is Drift Glass, and this is our bonus podcast about Breaking Bad, and yes. we are on the penultimate episode. We are. The Granite State. Again, we always remind everyone this episode will be full of, our podcast will be full of spoilers. Yes. So turn it off now. Turn it off. And we are political podcasters generally with the Professional Left podcast, and you're always welcome to join us there. But if you're just into Breaking Bad, we love having you here, too. Sure. And who isn't into Breaking Bad? Apparently. Riddle me this. <laughs> who isn't at this point into Breaking Bad? Apparently the makers of Dimple Pinch Whiskey are yes, <laughs> enjoying a good week. Yeah, I, I cruised over to their they, – they have a website. It's a real whiskey. It's a, very old. It's like one of the oldest um, whiskeys ever. In fact, I, I believe according to their website, uh, it was a gentleman named Haig who was – uh, taken was tried and convicted or taken to task or whatever by the church elders for for running his distillery on a Sunday. Oh my. That shows up in in Scottish documents 350 years ago that that's the heritage of this particular blended scotch whiskey. Goodness gracious. And but yeah, they're 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 very uh sleepy comment section was suddenly full of wise asses. <laughs> Named like Saul Goodman and Walter White and Holly White and Hector Salamanca, who said ding, 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 ding. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, that was just one of those. But it's a real thing. It's a real whiskey. Um, it's it's It would not be to my taste, but it's a very, it's a good whiskey. And uh, for a last Walter drink, White ordered it yeah, at the bar in for, this uh, episode. So For his farewell, he, he was turning himself in. He called up the DEA. He told him who he was and left the phone off the hook so they could find him. Went to the bar to have a farewell dimple pinch um, and then looked up and as, as has happened to all of us, Blue Gal, uh, saw Charlie Rose and, and suddenly everything loathed, changed. Loathed <laughs> the universe and hated everyone. <laughs> as, uh, as is usually the case when we turn on Charlie Rose in this house. Because <laughs> yes. uh, he'd spent whatever it was, however long he'd been, he, he was... Walter White, the uh, protagonist and now antagonist, or just tagonist, I guess would be the appropriate thing, right. of the story, has was transported in, in essentially in a barrel, which was kind of funny, yes. in a big yes. empty propane truck to, uh, to the Granite State, to New Hampshire, and put in a cabin and told not to leave. If you leave, they will catch you. Yep. They kept by the, the inimitable Robert Forster, who I'm sure you all remember as Max Cherry from Jackie Brown. Perfect casting, absolutely perfect casting to bring this guy in at this this second to last episode that you've never seen before and have him carry his part as well as he did. And it was the whole episode was an exercise in the sort of pathetic failure of Walter White and the hell that everyone's in now. Everyone's in hell. Everybody's in hell. And I Walter did want stuck. to back up just one moment and say that I had watched the previous episode. I want to I want to review yeah, yeah. something we said before and also talk about the podcast that you listen to with the writer of this episode. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I I watched the pre they always show the previous episode before they show the new episode. And yeah. I watched it again and watched that phone call with Walter White talking to Skyler. Uh -huh. And you were right. And I was not right or I. I didn't get it until I watched it the second time that he is absolutely speaking to her in code mm -hmm. and watching it the second time with that foreknowledge when he says stupid bitch to her, uh -huh. those are words that never come out of Walter White's mouth oh. talking to his wife. Ironically, <laughs> they're, they're Jesse's catchphrase. Yeah. 
Yeah. But but he has never said he's never talked to his wife that way. No. He's threatened her occasionally and tried to make it clear to her that we're a family. She, she should really. <laughs> but that's that wasn't him. That wasn't him. And he was saying to her, I'm I'm talking to the police now. Right. For you. And yes. this is this is farewell. Mm-hmm. And and off he goes to. The, the lake in hell, the frozen, those of you who have read the Inferno know there's a, there's a frozen lake in hell. Mm-hmm. And Walter White is stuck in a, in a cabin and dying. Um, his with, can- with two copies, uh, two VHS copies uh-huh. of Mr. Something Met. Megoria's Wonder Emporium. Wonder Emporium. <laughs> That's hell right there. That's something that Jean-Paul Sartre two would come copies. up with. Yeah. yeah. Two copies, not just one. You can watch both. Yeah. Which which tells you a lot about the backstory of that cabin. Yeah, it sure does. It uh-huh. sure does. But it's a little cabin with a wood burning stove in the middle of nowhere in what is supposed to be New Hampshire, and he is uh, and it's it's a fenced property, and he has to make a long long walk to the fence line. His um, caretaker, uh, the vacuum cleaner guy, would usually just drop his client off there. But Walter White, as he says, is a special case. Mm-hmm. There's a worldwide manhunt for Walter White. And so he he has to stay in this cabin and never leave. Mm-hmm. And if he leaves, he's going to be captured. And therefore, this guy is going to make supply runs once a month and come in and drop off food and and, and bundle newspapers from his hometown. And uh, there's a, just a desperately sad, truly pathetic scene uh, where Wal- Walter White's now dying. His cancer's back full blown. Yeah. He is skinny. His wedding ring falls off one night. Um, and he puts it around his neck like he's precious. Um, <laughs> but he's physically becoming a different person. And it occurred to me that Walter White doesn't have cancer. Walter White is cancer. Yeah, yeah. He has killed everyone he's touched. And and is, like cancer, amoral about it. Well, I'm just doing my – I'm just growing. I'm just, you know, doing what I do. Yeah, but you kill everyone around you. And eventually all the hosts die and you die too. Um, well, and, and let's talk – first of all, I want to talk about that. Uh, article in vulture.com mm-hmm. with an uh, interview with Peter Gould who wrote the episode Granite State. Yeah. And you ha- you said that he got some really good advice from, from Vince Gilligan. Gilligan about how to write the episode and how to write period. Period. Yeah, this was really this is really smart um, and very, very writerly. Mm-hmm. It was, he Vince Gilligan told his writers after some point Stop trying to make up new stuff. Mm-hmm. Mind what you already have. There's there's this rich vein of characters and events and faces and people and conversations. And, and I'm just sort of filling that in. Go back to what we've already done and bring it all forward. Keep bringing it forward. Keep looking for what you need in the stuff we've already done. And that is such an excellent way to create um, symmetry and completeness and a real rich story. So that when Walter calls up Walter Jr. to tell him he's got – of all the millions he's made that was shrunk to $11 million, that's now shrunk down to $100,000 in an insure box that he wants to give to his son. His son takes the call in the principal's office. And a principal that we know from several episodes or several seasons ago was the one that Walter White tried to hit on. Yes. And f- creeped her out. And was the one at this is the high school where he was at an assembly after a plane crash. So it's it's, you keep going back to characters you had before and incidents you had before and people you've run across before 
we keep we brought Andrea back mm-hmm. strictly to terrorize um, Jesse. The audience. The audience. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was to terrorize the audience, not to terrorize anybody else. I was. Everyone was just floored by that scene mm-hmm. out on the porch. And it, it was almost. It was almost the inversion of the scene that came later. The same Nazis show up at a different woman's house. Yes. To terrorize show her. Show up Skyler's house. To, yeah. to threaten her. Yeah. To threaten her. Yeah. And the um, the way that, that we've drilled back into the material that was already there mm-hmm. and talked about things that have already gone on. We went back to Gray Matter and we went back to Walter's old business partners mm-hmm. who are now on Charlie Rose talking about, oh, he's, he, he was nothing to us. Well, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that, too. The the idea that he was ready to turn himself in and had nothing to live for until he had hate again. Yes. And with the Charlie Rose making him insignificant, that's the worst thing you can do to Walter White is is make him insignificant. And, and he and literally has almost nothing left. Yeah. He's starving. He's skinny. He's his dying. Son, his son won't take the money. No. He's uh, paying a stranger to sit with him. Um, for, he's paying him $100,000, a stranger, to sit with him and just play cards with him so he won't have to do his chemo alone in a cabin yep. where he is going to die. Yep. He's already told this guy, look, one of these times you're going to come back, I'm going to be dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, my big barrel of useless money will just be sitting there. Mm-hmm. And it's just this – is a, this is the holy dug for himself, so it's hard to feel terribly sorry. But the way it's evoked is so pathetic and so frail. And so you know, this is – at the end of your life – all during the series, um, he and Jesse have been having this conversation off and on about fear and meaning. And Walter said, in fact, he told Hank after Hank was crippled that, you know, I used, I used to be afraid all the time. I used to go to bed terrified all the time. I'm 50 years old. I was afraid all the time. I was frightened my whole life. And then my cancer diagnosis came and I wasn't afraid of anything. I, and you know what? I sleep just fine now because yeah. he defeated fear. He suddenly wasn't afraid of anything. And that's when Heisenberg showed up, mm-hmm. who was yes. absolutely unafraid of anything. Didn't care if he killed him. Would walk right up and put the, the barrel of the gun you're holding on him right on his own forehead and say, go ahead and shoot. And who, who that kind of complete anarchic autonomy is what made Heisenberg powerful. And then there was meaning. This all has to mean something. What we're doing here, all the people who we've killed, all has yeah. to amount to something. It has to amount to money for my family. It has to amount to a legacy. It's something I can pass on. It has to be gray matter. It has to be a billion-dollar business that I can hand off to my family. Even at the point where it's absurd to keep thinking that way, he can't stop. Because if there's no meaning to it, then it was all for nothing. And if it was all for nothing and he's dying alone in a cabin, then the fear comes back. And now his his last attempt at at making the chaotic shithole that he's made of his life into something worthwhile is trying to bribe his son, give his son money. And his son comes back with, why aren't you dead already? And that's it. Yep. That's it. It's over. It's completely over. He's screwed. He can't leave this terrible place. And, and it it is, it has all come to nothing. His, his life, you know, and this is what, this is an older man's thoughts. Mm -hmm. This is a middle, this is middle-aged terror. My, my life has, has meant nothing. I have left nothing. Mm -hmm. I've left nothing behind. I've affected no one. I've improved no one's life. Um, and it was all for it was all meaningless. And he's and, he's been rejected by both his children. His yeah. daughter says, "Mama, mama." Right. And speaking of gifts from God to the to the show's yeah. creators, yeah. That was, apparently that was just 
what the little baby said. Right. As the camera happened. As the camera to happened on. to be on. <laughs> like, whoa. Whoa. And Brian Cranston. That up camera's an actor. on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That child knows. That yes. child's going places. Yes. Um, and then Walt Jr., you killed Hank. And so I don't want anything to do with you ever or your money or anything. And uh, so he has no legacy. At all. At all. Other than, and his identity is being abolished by the people in power. People who are powerful, who who, who get who to go on Charlie, Charlie Rose, Rose. Yeah. Are, are literally erasing his legacy. He never happened. He was never any good. He never contributed. He just contributed the name. The goodness that he was is dead. Whoever the hell this Heisenberg is, um, we know nothing of this man, and we we shun him. Mm-hmm. And and his life is just being eradicated. And that's and and the fear has come back. The real fear, you know, he's trying to threaten Saul in the basement. Yeah. And trying to be Heisenberg, and then his cancer starts him coughing and coughing and coughing, and suddenly he's just a weak, pathetic old man or middle aged man, who's got no power at all. And Saul just says, you know, I'm out of here. <laughs> Dude, here's what you should do. Turn yourself in. Turn yourself in. Go in with head held high. Give him the money. Do this for your family. And he's still trying to be Heisenberg. He's, no, I need to hire a bunch of assassins to go kill the Nazis, get my money back, and then I'll turn this fucker around. And you realize that he's just insane. He's just lost his mind. And so this this was his march into hell, and he really hits bottom. He really finally comes to terms with how powerless and how how completely tragic his life has been um, in this cabin. Yep. And he walks out of the cabin to to give the money to his son who rejects him, and that's the, that's the straw that breaks his back. Yeah. And he then orders a final drink, calls the DEA, sets himself up to be arrested, and then he sees his old partners on television. Yep. And all and he has left now, yeah. all he has left is hate and hate. rage and yeah. a desire to go out you know, it's, again, Granite State, the, the motto, live free or die. I'm going to go out on my own terms. Which, by the way, live free or die, I found out, is the title of the season opener for, for season five. Yeah, yeah. So they've been rehashing this theme over and over again of the live free or die movement. Yeah, and that that bodes ill for Walter White's future, well, I think. And there's this <laughs> there's this speech somewhere uh, somewhere where he's telling Jesse, look, if there's a hell, we're both going there. Yeah, but I'm not going to lay down and die until we go there. I'm not going to give up until I'm taken out. And so now we have now everything is in motion. All the pieces are on the board exactly where they need to be for the last episode, and everyone is on a collision course with everyone else. And that's where that's where we start talking about King Lear and the parallels to yeah, Lear. Yeah, and and I, uh, you had mentioned that Walter White has three children. In a sense, he in a really sense, does. He really and, does, and it's it's Walt Jr. Obviously, it's his is, son is... <laughs> and uh, Jesse. Uh-huh. And then you you think that Todd is kind of in the a certain son way. of Heisenberg. I, I, I don't want to force the Breaking Bad plot down onto the Kingler template too hard. Mm-hmm. Let's say there have to be three sons and, and it has to unfold this way. But there are three young men he's brought under his wing mm-hmm. and taught them how to be a certain way, you know, instructed them. One of them is Jesse, who we taught that who we taught the only two people who can cook are Jesse and Todd. Yeah, They're, you know Todd sucks at it, but he's he he can do seventy percent. Yeah, yeah. Jesse can do ninety six percent, and Dad can do ninety nine point nine nine percent. And his he tries to walk away from his kingdom. He tries to sign it all off and, and walk away from it, and it disintegrates. 
And the one innocent child who want, who doesn't want anything to do, never wanted anything to do with dad's secret crazy life, just loved his father, respected his father, wanted to just have dad take his cancer treatment and take care of himself and be a good dad um, is the one he rejects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The one he, you know, he, he rebukes, not rebukes, but the one he holds aloof and the one who finally rejects him. And the tragedy in, in uh, Lear is that uh, eventually, at the very, very end, um, the good child dies. Yeah. The kingdoms are destroyed. His empire is ripped apart by his progeny. He, he keeps trying to assert his power and, and, and events keep undermining him. And he eventually goes insane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he eventually goes insane, ends up wandering the wilderness with a fool. And I kind of th- if if somebody had to play that part, it would be Saul. Ah, Saul is the fool. Saul's and the, wa- Saul leaves him. I mean, that, that's yeah. the beauty of that where they're in there together. I think that is a very much a leer and fool moment where yeah. it's over when I say it's over. No, it's over. No, no, it's over. <laughs> and, and Saul's giving him wisdom. Yeah. Saul's telling him the truth, which is what, you know, classically a fool or, or a jester is supposed to do. Yeah. They're supposed to say the things that you can't, that nobody else can nobody tell. Nobody else the in the court can say, yes. Yeah. yeah. But he's like, you know, you need to go in there and give yourself up. You need to stop this right now. And I'm telling you right now. And um, and then then he's gone. He says, no, I'm out of here, man. I'm gone. You know, you're you're on your own. Here's I told you what you should do. But in the end, Lear's um, legacy is destroyed and in flames. His children have torn each other apart and are dead, and he dies of a broken heart. And I'm not saying that's how it's going to end, but there's a real – I got a real strong feeling of that kind of really good classical tragedy mm-hmm. underneath uh, – the structure underneath the story. Yep, yep. I, and, I, I do uh, too. I do too. And, and I also wanted to mention uh, the treasure of this – speaking of great tragedy – or great stories, treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yes, yes. Uh, there's a, we don't – we don't need no badges in the shootout. They were asking for badges, uh-huh. and that made all everyone think of Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And, and when you th- and, and, and how it ended. And no spoilers well, here. If you haven't seen Treasure of the Sierra Madre, really just turn this. That's off. a good thing to do while you're waiting for Breaking yeah. Bad to come to, for that episode to come up. Is go watch Treasure of the Again, Sierra Madre. <laughs> it's not a you know Gus. No, it's, it, not it's, Gus. it's not a Gus Savant. Well, I'm, I'm I'm getting the guy wrong. Shot for shot remake of of um. Psycho. Uh-huh. This isn't a remake of the Treasure of the Sierra Madre, but it does involve men who are sort of operating outside the law, um, whose major problem are the, both the cops and the bandits, who are vulnerable to claim jumpers and other people who come in and want to take their money away from them, and who who one of them is wise enough to understand that gold is a devilish thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you swear you only want a little bit. You swear it on a stack of Bibles. You'll swear to God you only want fifteen thousand. Then when you're starving, it's only ten, and then finally it's five. For God's sakes, I swear five thousand dollars, and I'll never ask you another thing. And then you strike it rich, and then nothing is enough. Nothing is enough. And there's a bit in the Treasure of the Sierra Madre where they have an intruder, and these guys they can either cut him in or they can kill him. Yeah, yeah. And they decide to kill him, but the bandits show up first, and suddenly he becomes an ally. But there's these moral decisions that are that are completely outside the law, outside the boundaries of of what you and I would consider traditional morality, because they're out, they're literally in the wilderness. They're literally outside, and they are in the desert. They are in the desert, and then one of them goes crazy, and there's a long conversation about killing someone and leaving them buried in the desert. And the very end, the very end of the treasure of the Sierra Madre. I, and if you haven't seen it, yeah, Delete. I won't spoil Just it. Turn it off, but turn it off now. They lose everything. Yeah. 
Um, one of their numbers is dead. Um, two of their numbers really are dead. And uh, the two people that you've been sort of rooting for the entire time, the two that didn't go crazy, have everything taken from them. Um, it all, all the gold blows away. Literally all blows away <laughs> because the, the people who stole their burrows didn't recognize the gold for what it was and stole the pelts instead. And the gold just blows away. And in the end, these two guys, the old man and the young man, are just laughing their heads off because it's a joke. It's God's big joke. He kept us in the wilderness sweating and straining and laboring and killing for 10 months and, and we have nothing. And, uh, and they're going to go off and find real lives, not gold-based lives, but real lives doing real work and helping real people. But it's, there's something there too. There's something about that ending where everything returns to its zero state mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and everything goes back to the beginning and, and the, the person who couldn't handle the pressure or in this case, many, many people who couldn't handle the pressure end up dead. And the people who escaped, I kind of think of um, Howard and Curtin from, uh, from uh, um, Treasure of the Sierra Madre as like Huel and Skinny Pete, you know? And I, I doubt we're ever going to find out what happens to Huel and Skinny Pete. I don't know. I'd like Poor Huel. What's, what's the deal with Huel? Because uh, the two people that put Huel in protective custody are dead. Right. The guy who is supposed to be holding him doesn't know that and will right. never know that. So he's just sitting in that hotel room. He's sitting in that hotel room, just or that house or whatever it is, waiting, waiting, thinking that Jesse's been murdered by Walter White. Mm-hmm. Poor Huel. We're never, I don't think we're ever going to see Huel again. I don't, I don't know. I, I would like to see like a, a Rosencrantz and Gilderstern are dead kind of thing <laughs> where the minor characters are the ones who are left at the edge of the stage. Not, of course, you know, Rosencrantz and Gilderstern do die. But um, the the minor characters are left to look upon the tragedy mm. and say, "Holy be shit!" The chorus, yeah, holy yeah. shit! You know, yeah. and, and and the uh, the guards just come and carry everybody off stage because in in Shakespeare's tragedy, everybody dies. Everybody dies. Everybody dies, and they die in a way that was once you read the play backwards was completely inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> they were once their tragic flaw. Once you know, once Dad's ghost comes back and says, "Avenge me," that's Hamlet, it. He's doomed. Downhill from there. <laughs> he's doing, and he, he struggles with. It. He struggles and struggles and doesn't want to do it. And isn't sure he's supposed to do it. And isn't sure if he kills his uncle while at prayer, his uncle will go to heaven. That's not vengeful enough. But it you can just watch characters in a Shakespeare in any tra- in any good tragedy, but it's specifically in a Shakespearean tragedy, arc towards their inevitable doom. Yeah, and it's it's the sort of thing that makes you. Uh, makes modern audiences in movie theaters go, don't go in that house, Luke. <laughs> and I uh, finally, I wanted to say, I know I got a couple of uh, shocked emails that Jesse on the video that the Nazis are watching refers to Todd as Opie. Yeah. And that somehow I no, that was just a lucky guess. Yeah. How close are you to those writers? Ah. No, I'm sorry. A redheaded, freckled faced, innocent kid is Opie. So yes. I, that was just a lucky guess. Yes. But and, and there are parts of they're the, never going to call it Opie Lannister because, you know, no. they don't want to get sued by George R.R. R. Martin. But no, and, and, <laughs> I'll call him Opie Lannister from now on. And the estate of Andy Griffith. You just don't want that. <laughs> you don't, you don't want to risk risk all that nonsense. Ron um, Howard is a power holder in Hollywood. You don't he want will. To he will reach him. out and destroy you. <laughs> and he's, he's so innocent looking. That's what, well, you never see it coming. Yeah. And there, there are, there's just lots of good parts, little bits. And we talked about sort of the meta literary stuff swirling around this. But. You know, Todd picking a, a little piece of lint off of his future Lydia, mate's Lydia's back. Like involuntarily. the heart wants what the heart I wants. I know, <laughs> I know. 
coming out of the coming out of Happy Jack the Nazi. Best you know? line of the whole episode. Mm-hmm. My personal opinion. And they're watching Jesse's confession as one might watch a particularly bad reality TV show. Watching him cry and laughing about it. And the only thing that makes them mad is that Jesse ratted out Todd. Yeah. That makes Uncle Jack mad. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesse's abortive escape. His, you know, the murder of his girlfriend, his ex-girlfriend in front of him to make sure they understand. He understands how serious they are. Break Don't be in. too sad, Jesse. The kid's still alive. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I shot his mother in cold blood on her front porch. But, just you to, know. Just to remind you, just to tell you that we're you, serious. Give you a message. You know, that's all. This isn't personal. And and this is what, this is, again, what, what happens when you leave civilization and go into the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, not literally, but... You are beyond the reach of the law, yeah. and and the law is always two steps behind. And you're dealing with people who are just Todd knows just what he wants. He knows exactly what he wants in life. Uh, yeah. Uncle Jack knows exactly what he wants, mm-hmm. and are not troubled by you know by little pings of conscience about killing people who get in their way. No, um, they have no overblown sense of their own grandiosity. I don't think Uncle Happy Jack, you know, the happy Nazi, ever. Imagines himself running a billion-dollar software corporation. He he never imagined that in his life. He was always this thug yeah. who's really good at being a thug uh, but never had grand plans for a vampire. And he's willing to walk away. Hey, we have all the money in the world. We don't need to do anymore. Um, and then, of course, there's uh, Miss uh, Quayle. Lydia Quayle, yes. And we know what she wants, too. She wants 92 to 96% yeah. and blue. That's she what was she... almost out. And then yeah. then Todd came with his PowerPoint presentation. And gave her what she wanted. Now, look, look at these numbers. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is very profitable. Perhaps I should stick around while you murder people. <laughs> yeah. That's she's going to have to suffer greatly, either suffer greatly or become vice president of marketing for <laughs> she's she's still the X factor. Everybody knows everything. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing the cops don't know, the one thing nobody knows except the Nazis is who she is. Yep. And one thing that. Well, um, and, and they protected her, mm-hmm. they claim. Yes. From, from Skylar. And the one thing Skylar knows but doesn't know she knows. Yeah. Is who, is who Lydia is, yeah. Uh-huh. And I don't think she remembered who she was until... No, until um, Todd I, came in. I didn't said, think she was thinking about that at all. By the way, you remember this one person you met on this one occasion that one time and yelled at her? If you ever mention her, I'll come and kill your whole family. Yeah. Okay, then. Well, then. I guess she's really important, but I, you know... Right. I don't know why Todd didn't kill her. Yeah, well, because of Mr. White. That's right. He has a lot of respect for her husband, and he says that. Yeah, 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 that's why. You know, and because, you know, the There's the heart, always a why in this show. The, the heart wants what it wants. Explained, yeah. Oh, and there was, I, I do want to say, just again, uh, we're probably ready to wrap this up, but I want to mention that the writers who were interviewed for the show talked about how, how hard it was to write the scene with, with Saul and Walter in the basement of the vacuum cleaner shop. Yeah. Until they realized the real problem, which is, which is one they've always, they haven't always had, but they, they sort of strayed from one of their key rules, which was what exactly is Walter go, going on Walter's head right now? Mm-hmm. What is he thinking right? They kept wanting to have the plot do certain things. Mm-hmm. And they returned to like, no, what's Walter doing in his mind right now? Is he given up? Is he done? Or is he still crazy enough to think that he can turn this thing around? Has he, has he broken yet? Yeah. No, he hasn't broken no, yet. He, hasn't he still broken thinks yet. he can turn this thing around. He needs a he needs a list of people from yeah. Saul. What? What? <laughs> uh huh. And Saul, of course, comes through with the one funny line in the entire show. This thing, which is uh, when when 
Robert Forster comes down and says, you know, are we good? Because they're fighting. And Saul turns around and says, define good. Define good. Because <laughs> Saul's off to be an assistant manager in Cinnabon in Nebraska. Cinnabon in Nebraska. <laughs> yeah, that's his life. That's his that's future. That's going to be his life. Yeah. And he's getting ready for it. Yeah. He's preparing yeah, he's himself. he's mentally ready for that. Yeah. yeah. This is... This is the re- this is the um, pre-birth area. This is the the womb they're in. They're, they're going to be reborn as some of, someone else. And Saul's ready to go. He might not like it, but he has resigned himself to the fact that that I'm I'm going to have a new life now. It's going to suck. I'll have I'll be that dick with three dockers running a Cinnabon. Yep. But I'll be alive. I'll be alive. Yes. And I'll and be I'm the a survivor. Yeah. And and all along the way, everyone has underestimated the destructive power that. Walter White is unleashing. Except for Saul. But he kept sticking around for the money. Yeah. He never cut him loose. You know, Mike Mike said, you're a time bomb, and I'm not going to be around when you go off. You're going to take out everybody around you. But he stuck around. Walter always found a way to suck people in and to make them do what he wanted to advance his agenda. Like Ted Cruz. <laughs> we'll get on to our political podcast yeah. a little bit later, but we're glad you're here with us. Uh, feel free to write us. You can write to both of us at proleftpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, we thank you so much for listening. Yeah, and one more to go. So I know one we're all... One more to go. And then and then I get my life back. Is that what happens? Oh, because then The Walking Dead comes back on. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we want to hear from you. If you guys want to have a podcast on Walking Dead or Game of Thrones, we'll probably definitely do Game of Thrones. Yeah. Well, that's HBO. It's not porn, honey. It's HBO. It's HBO. <laughs> There's a whole video about that. How am I going to last the whole winter without the newsroom? You know, I'll figure out a way. <laughs> I have I have these piles of things I didn't even think around. about the newsroom this whole episode. Yeah. Isn't that sad? Isn't that funny? Yeah. <laughs> so. Even though Will Mac, even though uh, they won an Emmy. They um, won an Emmy. And congratulations to the actress who plays Skylar. She won an Emmy. Ina Gunn. Congratulations. Ina Gunn. Yes, congratulations. We didn't talk about the enemies because I'm not Emmys because I'm not particularly interested in the entire universe of television. Yeah. I'm interested in this one particular really good show that is the kind of show that you can point to and say, this is every bit as monumental and brilliant and excellent as the Godfather movies. This is every bit as monumental and excellent as as the best literature you're, you're going to read. It's really that good. And um, the writers have been absolutely faithful yep. to telling a really good story and not betraying any characters, not suddenly having Toby betray the president of the United States in the West Wing because the plot demands it, not having people do things that they wouldn't do normally. Thinking through and talking through and arguing through every single point along the way until they have exactly the story they want to tell and telling it with complete confidence that, look, this is our story. We make no apologies for it. It is exactly what we wanted to put on on screen. Uh, it, it ain't going out like Lost. And that's a... That's a wonderful that's thing. That's a wonderful that's thing. That's a wonderful thing. And yep. there's going to be a whole left when this show is over. All right. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.